Africa. Welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I am James Barty in Washington. Today is Monday, October 17th, and here are some of the stories we are covering. Millions in Africa face hunger as the world marks World Food Day. The discussion around food insecurity is so real now, given now, of course, the Ukraine-Russia crisis. But we have the capacity to grow a lot of this food in our countries to feed ourselves. The World Bank holds a panel discussion on the state of the African region, opportunities in a turbulent time. Tunisians take to the streets to protest economic hardship. Somali journalist chief is out on bail after appearance before Mogadishu court. President Museveni introduces lockdown measures to curb the spread of Ebola in Uganda. All seasonal markets are suspended in the Kassanda Mugende district. All places of worship are closed. All bars, places of entertainment, gyms and saunas will be closed. And a program that works to get African girls into school and keep them there. Those stories plus Samson O'Malley's posts are coming up on Daybreak Africa. Millions of people are feeling the impact of the global food crisis, and this is expected to worsen in 2023. An estimated 1 million people are living in famine conditions, with starvation and deaths occurring daily, as 3 billion people cannot afford a healthy diet. The United Nations World Food Program is calling for urgent action to address the root causes of the problem, as the international community celebrated World Food Day yesterday, Sunday. Marie Ojiam report from Nairobi. The world is at risk of yet another year of record hunger as the global food crisis continues to drive millions of people into worsening levels of acute food insecurity. World Food Day comes at a time when the number of people affected by hunger globally has more than doubled in the past three years. The United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres says everyone should have enough to eat and that farmers should access fertilizers to secure food for the future. The theme of this year's World Food Day is to leave no one behind. Better production, better nutrition, and better environment, and a better life. Government, scientists, the private sector, and civil society need to work together to make nutritious diets available and affordable for all. Financial institutions need to increase their support to developing countries so they can help their people and invest in food systems. Together, we must move from despair to hope and action. On World Food Day and every day, I call on you to be part of the change. The global food crisis is a result of a number of issues that have pushed the number of hungry people around the world from 282 million to 345 million in just the first months of the year. Guterres says underprivileged people are the most affected. The most vulnerable communities are being battered by the COVID-19 pandemic, the climate crisis, environmental degradation, conflict and deepening inequalities. The war in Ukraine has accelerated the rise in food and fertilizer and energy prices. But we can reverse all these trends if we act together. There is enough food for everyone in our world this year. The Food and Agriculture Organization is calling on governments, the private sector, academia and civil society to work together to prioritize the right of the people to food, nutrition, peace and equality. In Kenya, at least 4 million people are facing hunger. The government is struggling to keep the economy afloat with a huge number of Kenyans spending days on an empty stomach. The Secretary General of Kenya Red Cross Society, Asha Mohammed, says that the number of those facing hunger in the country is likely to increase. 
23 out of the 47 counties urgently need food aid. Only early this year we were speaking of 3 million people affected. But now that number stands at over 4 million. This number could rise to 4.5 million by the end of the year, given that the October, November, December rains are projected to be inadequate. According to the World Food Programme, an unprecedented drought in the Horn of Africa is pushing more people into alarming levels of food insecurity. As the number of extremely hungry people continues to increase, so does the need for global action for peace, economic stability, and continued humanitarian support. Reporting for VOS Daybreak Africa, I am Moreno Jambo in Nairobi, Kenya. Ahead of this year's World Food Day, the World Bank on Saturday organized a panel discussion entitled State of the Africa Region Opportunities in a Turbulent Time. Panelists discussed global headwinds affecting the Africa region, including high debt, high food and energy prices, particularly measures that can deliver big wins for food security on the continent. Monica Musonda, CEO of Java Foods Limited, Zambia, and Janine Cooper, Liberia's Agriculture Minister, both spoke on the panel looking at transforming Africa into a bigger player in food production and trade to improve regional food security and create inclusive growth. First, Monica Musonda. The discussion around food insecurity is so real now, given now, of course, the Ukraine-Russia crisis and what it's done for many, many staples for things like refined oils. But we have the capacity to grow a lot of this food very well. I think the issue is we still have to address things like yields, uh, things like around seed, the soil issues, distribution as well. But I want to talk today particularly about local production. The support is very good and very necessary to support primary agriculture, but we can't stop there. That's why we're in this crisis today. We are not producing enough in our countries to feed ourselves. So what can we do about this? And I think the first thing is we have to really now look around technical assistance and approach for local producers. How can we as local producers produce safe, nutritious and affordable foods? What foods can we produce well in this country, which can be used in a different country? What else can we do around access to affordable financing so that these companies can actually grow to scale? The big issue is around how do we really prop up these businesses in order for them to produce safe food. And the third one is about distribution. And I love the discussion about trade because this is actually really true. The fact is we are now forced to look around at each other and say, actually, we can trade much better with each other, but understand the problems. I mean, food is particularly interesting because every country has their own standards. How can we really look at those issues to make sure we reduce the standard, reduce the cost so that local foods can easily compete with a lot of the imports? And I challenge all the governments here today, this is the time for action. Our food security approach in Liberia was always stabilize the price and availability of imported food and support smallholder farmers. That's where we stopped. But, um, you know, Ebola was the first shock that told us, uh, you know, borders are closed, you can't get food in, you're import dependent, what do you do? We were not surprised when the COVID started. But turbulence is now the norm around the world. And, you know, we're looking at the opportunities that we have as a nation to leapfrog over all of these challenges that we have been stagnating at that level. I see four opportunities, maybe five, because 
all of this turbulence gives us an opportunity to reframe and move beyond defining and admiring and restudying challenges. One is to apply partnerships in ways that help us to catalyze the sustainable development that we're talking about. Triple yield solutions like having uh, solar energy providing water for drinking and for irrigation and food production at village level. Second one is an opportunity to in- intensify our efforts along, along our food systems pathways, which are empowering women, employing youth, and mechanizing our agriculture, our farming and processing. We have to look beyond just the farming, as Monica just said. And women play in Liberia 90% of the role of food production. So how can we empower them not just to give them high-yielding seeds and there's still that one woman with a baby on her back Mm. and sometimes one in her belly having to bend over backwards Mm. to deal with more yield. She still has 24 hours in the day and everything else that comes with agri-food. What do the youth like? They like machines. They like the digital. They, yeah. All of these things, it's the youth that are going to do it, not the old farmers like yeah. myself who will get out there and operate the machinery. A third opportunity that we have right now in Liberia is to revisit the balancing of imports versus local production of food. Yeah. That was Danny Cooper, Liberia's Agriculture Minister. Earlier, you heard Monica Musanda, CEO of Java Foods Limited Zambia. They both spoke Saturday at a World Bank sponsor a panel discussion in Washington, D.C. Ugandan President Joweri Museveni has introduced lockdown measures in districts affected by the Ebola virus, restricting movement and closing gathering places. Health practitioners welcomed the move, saying they are long overdue. Reporter Mugumi Davis-Rakarinji has more from Kampala. With Ebola cases continuing to rise and spread different parts of the country, Ugandan President Yoweri Museveni addressed the nation this past weekend introducing lockdown measures in two strickland districts in the center of the country, Movende and Kasanda. He said his decision is based on the failure of suspected cases and others to adhere travel restrictions and other control measures to control the outbreak. President Museven has restricted movements to and from the two districts and suspended all public gatherings. He has also imposed a curfew in the areas starting from 7 p.m. to 6 a.m. All seasonal markets are suspended in the Kasanda move in the district. All children, teachers, and non-teaching staff who have had contacts with the person who has, who has signs or symptoms of Ebola should not go to school. All places of worship are closed. All bars, places of entertainment, gyms, and saunas in the Kassanda district will be closed. President M7 also issued instructions on barriers. All barriers, whether Ebola or not, shall be conducted by the health barrier team during this period. Samples will be taken from all dead bodies and tested for Ebola. The country now has 59 cases, resulting in 19 deaths, including health workers, after the disease was confirmed late last month. Dr. Samuel Eledu, the head of Uganda Medical Association, says quarantining the two districts will help fight against the deadly disease. He says it is important to restrict movement in the areas because the viral hemorrhagic fever has a 21-day incubation period which may lead infected people to unknowingly spread the illness to others. To us, it is a great move and also the move of him preventing witch doctors and herbalists 
from Dutch impatience is the most excellent move. These abalists are going to cause a lot of infections spreading to other people, even to themselves and their families. The Ebola virus affects both humans and primates. The Sudan variant confirmed in Uganda last month has a mortality rate of up to 50%. Some of the ways to limit exposure to disease include avoiding contact with the blood and body fluids of persons with or suspected of having Ebola and forgotten rules of those who have died of the disease. For VOA News, I am Mugume, Davis Ruakarinjin Kampala, Uganda. You are listening to Daybreak Africa on the Voice of America. I'm James Butty in Washington. Today is Monday, October 17th. Still to come on our program, Samson O'Malley Sports. There were more protests in Tunisia over the weekend, blaming President Kai Sai for economic hardships and calling for his resignation. This, as Tunisia prepares for parliamentary elections on December 17th. Safa Ben Saad is adjunct professor at the University of Sherbrooke in Quebec, Canada. She tells me that the latest protests are both politically and economically motivated. Tunisians are struggling with uh, an economic crisis. There is a shortage of uh, basic goods. Food prices are increasing and um, people purchasing power is increasing. The shelves are empty. There's no sugar, no vegetable oil, and uh, many other goods disappear from uh, supermarkets and grocery stores. This crisis is not new. Uh, we have to say for several months, Tunisians have been struggling with the food crisis, uh, I want to say, but the president has continued to deny the existence of uh, a real crisis, blaming speculators and um, political opposition for the lack of essential goods. And now during the last week, Tunisians uh, have faced a new shortage, a shortage of petrol. And it was almost the first time that the government mentioned the global crisis, but still hiding the fact that the country is facing an economic and a financial crisis. But there is uh, anger also in the street for many other reasons. That's what I wanted to ask you, Professor, because the way you talk, it seems to me that the protests are motivated mostly by the economic crisis. But yet the protesters, some of them have been chanting against the current uh, president. So is there a political tune to the protests? Yeah, the fact is there's two kinds of mobilization. There are this demonstration of political parties. There were two on Saturday, the Salvation Front, for example, and the Free Destruction Party, which are both opposition parties. And the popular mobilization, as we have seen in the popular suburb of Tunis, where clashes with the police and the, there is also mobilization of families of missing migrants, for example, in the city of Tajdis in the southeast of the country. So there are two kinds of uh, mobilization. The political parties are demonstrating, uh, for sure, I mean, the, the economic crisis is an argument. This is a real argument and a strong argument, but we cannot blame everything on the economic crisis. The main challenge, at least for the political parties, is the parliamentary election uh, scheduled for December 17. Now, the financial and economic crisis could be fatal, fatal for President Kaysayed's plan, even though the referendum he organized on July 25 gave him a head start over the opposition. There was this uh, new constitution. How come it appears the crisis is continuing? Are the people not satisfied with the constitution? 
Yeah, the fact is that the president gets the majority on the new constitution, the majority of the vote, but the majority of Tunisians stayed home. They didn't uh, even vote for the constitution. So people are uh, somehow destabilized with uh, the economic crisis also. And uh, even I think that for the legislative elections uh, that the people will not go for vote. So even after the elections, I'm not sure that there will be a stable political situation in Tunisia. Professor, thank you so much again for your insight. I do appreciate it. Thank you. Safa Bensad is adjunct professor at the University of Sherbrooke in Canada. She was speaking with us from the province of Quebec. Somali veteran journalist Abdallah Akhmed Mumi is out on bail after being arrested last week on security-related charges. Mohamed Dyson has more from Somalia's capital, Mogadishu. Abdallah Ahmed Moumin, the secretary general of the Somali Journalist Syndicate, or SGS, appeared in a Mogadishu court Sunday, six days after he was arrested at the airport and stopped from traveling to Kenya to visit relatives Moumin was accused of disobeying the law, according to the judges seen by VOA. The country's attorney general office judged Abdallah on behalf of the information ministry, which recently issued a directive barring Somali journalists from reporting news related to Islamist militant group Al-Shabaab. Mohamed Ibrahim, the Somali journalist syndicate president, spoke with VOA by phone. He described the judges as trumped up. In Monday, the magistrates appeared at the court today after being behind bars for six days. Ibrahim says the Attorney General's office announced three judges and that the government's main goal is to silence the independent media. He urged the Attorney General's office to drop the judges. He added that the Attorney General asked 45 days to investigate the case and provide evidence. Laetitia Badr is Horn of Africa Director of Human Rights Watch. She tells VOA Momin is being judged under what she describes as a very outdated criminal code which should have been reviewed years ago. She says it is repeatedly being used to restrict legitimate space for the media. The Somali government should have released um, Abdali Ahmed Moumin from the beginning. Um, it's very clear that he's being held and investigated on apparently politically motivated allegations directly linked to the work he does to promote media freedoms in, in Somalia. A number of international organizations condemned Moumin's arrest. Hossein Mohammed, a freelance journalist based in Mogadishu for the New York Times, told VOA that the new directive put journalists at a higher risk than they have ever faced before. Mohammed said the government issued the order without consulting media organizations in the country. The Committee to Protect Journalists also condemned the arrest. The CG-based Sub-Saharan Africa representative Muthaki Mumu said in a recent statement that Mumu's arrest was unacceptable aggression and is undoubtedly sending a ripple of fear through the Somali media community. Rights group Amnesty International 
issued similar comments. Somalia is one of the deadliest countries for the journalists in the world, with more than 50 killed since 2010, according to reporters without borders. Mohamed Daisane for VON News, Mogadishu. It's time now for Daybreak Africa Sports, and here is Samson Omale in Abuja, Nigeria. A very good Monday morning to you, Samson. Good Monday morning to you too, James. We begin the sport with FIFA on the 17 Women's World Cup where Tanzania recorded a 2-1 victory over France in a Group D match of the FIFA Women's on the 17 World Cup currently being hosted by India on Saturday to keep their prospects of advancing beyond the group stage alive. With three points and Canada to play in the final group game, Tanzania will hope to qualify for next round while France will need a huge upset against group favourites and former champions Japan. Later on today, the Flamingos of Nigeria will be up against South American side Chile inside the Kalinga Stadium. Both teams have three points each, but the Flamingos of Nigeria boast of superior goals tally and will qualify if the game ends in a stalemate. Staying with women's football, Sierra Leone launched its first women's football league on Saturday, a competition involving 12 clubs aimed at promoting the sports in the West African country and the rest of the continent. The 12 privately owned clubs will play from now until April 2023, where the winner will get a cash award and the trophy. My colleague James Botti spoke with Thomas Daddy Brima, president of the Sierra Leone Football Association, on the launch of the Women's Super League. It was spectacular. You know, uh, Sierra Leone have been playing female football, but not in organized. That's the first organized female league football, and we're all very excited about it. The president of the country came to grace the occasion. And that's why I said it was spectacular. How advanced is women's football in Sierra Leone in order to have a Premier League? Well, uh, like I started saying, it's the first organized female Premier League football, you know. We've been playing female football in Sierra Leone. But to answer your question, we are trying to bring it to that level where we can say it's advanced. No, the problem, particularly when it comes to women's football, is the issue of support. Even in men's football, how much support is your association or the Sierra Leone government willing to give these women? Well, for a start, uh, the president of the country is a sign of... uh, support for female football and then of course the federation is more than ready to support female football and uh, that's more or less the reason why the program was accepted by all forms of like people around football. Marrakesh and Rabat have been confirmed as the two venues that will host the second edition of the CAF Women's Champions League from the 30th of October to the 13th of November 2022. In athletics, Kenya's Irene Chaptai on Sunday won the New Delhi Half Marathon in India. Chaptai, the Commonwealth Games 10,000 meter silver medalist, won the race in a personal best time of 66 minutes 42 seconds ahead of Ethiopia's Dawit Seyam, while Uganda's Stella Chisang came in third in a time of 68 minutes 11 seconds. 
Elsewhere, it was Ethiopian affair in this year's Amsterdam Marathon as it won both the men and women's races held on Sunday in the Netherlands. It was a sweet comeback for Almaz Ayana, who won the race after running a course record time of 2 hours, 17 minutes, 20 seconds. And that's it on Daybreak Africa Sports. I am Samson Omale in Abuja, Nigeria. It's back to you, James, in Washington. And that's it for this Monday, October 17th edition of Daybreak Africa. We thank you for beginning your week with us. For more Africa news and features, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Connect with us on all social media platforms, including Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We are also on YouTube, where you can watch our TV shows, Africa 54, Straight Talk Africa, and Red Carpet. On behalf of the Daybreak Africa team, I am James Barton, Washington, wishing that you will have a great day. Hey, sports fans, brighten your day by tuning in to the sunny side of sports, Monday through Friday at 1630 and 1830 UTC. Join us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash VOA Sunny and on Twitter at VOA Sunny Sports. Or check out the blog at blogs.voanews.com forward slash sunny. It's the sunny side of sports right here on The Voice of America.